Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, long time no speak. Welcome to a new episode of Say Why to Drugs. Sorry there's been radio silence for the past few weeks. I have been beavering away behind the scenes though, and now have a few bonus episodes in the bank for the next few weeks, and hopefully Pip and I will be meeting soon to record some more. In the meantime, today's episode is a special one, as it's the first branded episode that I've done. And it was a really easy decision to make to do this episode. King's College London Addictions Group are hugely respected in the field. And it's out of this group that the excellent What's the Crack is made. So we're already podcast buddies. So last week, I spoke to the head of the Addictions Group, Professor Sir John Strang. And we discussed the concept of addiction. What do we mean by the term? How helpful is it as a medical label? And some of the myths and misconceptions that people have around addiction. A small apology that there was some drilling going on when we recorded this, but hopefully it won't be too distracting. So without further ado, myself and John Strang say why to addiction. I'm very excited today to be joined by Professor Sir John Strang from King's College London. So, John, would you like to tell us a little bit about what it is that you do? Yeah, it's really nice to be speaking to you. And uh, I head up the addictions group uh, at the National Addiction Centre, which is based at uh, King's College London. Uh, So that's at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience. Uh, And it's also closely linked to the treatment services that are at the Maudsley, South London and Maudsley, and connected through to uh, other hospital groups as well. And that probably gives a sense of the footprint that we have, that we're a, we're a university group, uh, but with interests and connections to both treatment services and to policy formation, both locally and internationally. Great. And the reason that John is joining me on the podcast today is because a lot of listeners have asked for an episode about sort of the concept of addiction and who better than someone who heads up an addiction group than to talk about that topic. So we'll start off with the small question of uh, what is addiction? Yeah, thanks for such a simple question to start <laughs> off, and uh, I've presumably got 45 seconds to answer. <laughs> You've got um, as long as you want. <laughs> it's a hugely important question, and you know many PhD students have explored this uh, you know, uh, ad infinitum. Uh, I think it's useful to think about it in the specific sense, but also in the, uh, the general sense of what do we mean uh, from a general public point of view. So there, there are sort of medical or uh, scientific ways of viewing it. But from a, from a general public point of view, it's really to do with when somebody's uh, life, uh, the trajectory, trajectory they're on, has been knocked off balance or the trajectory is going in the wrong direction 
in a way that their substance use, whether that's legal or illegal, uh, however it's used, that the substance use has created that imbalance, uh, that unhealthy trajectory. Now, we call that addiction. Uh, other occasions, you know, we'd call it, you know, substance use problems. I think what's interesting from a general public point of view and also a science point of view is, is there something that's changed that's then unhealthy about it, which wasn't there before? And that probably then leads to what's worth studying and from a treatment point of view, what's potentially remediable. Is there a difference between addiction and dependence, do you think? Mm. I, th- I think for the purposes of this conversation, they're pretty similar. Uh, but the other, the other question you could have asked is, is that the same as drug problems? Mm-hmm. And of course, problems might certainly arise where somebody isn't dependent. Let's take some practical examples. You know, somebody who has a who kills themselves in a car accident as a result of intoxication, uh, that might be directly related to their alcohol use. Whether they were dependent or not becomes a completely separate consideration. Yeah. Or someone who has a drug overdose. You know. Now, maybe the dependence, uh, the compulsive driven nature of that drug use may make it more likely to occur. Uh, but that's different from the from the dependence itself. Do you think it's the case that everyone has the potential to sort of develop dependence to a drug or become addicted to a drug? By and large, when we look at population studies, uh, and particularly when we look at uh, wider factors such as price and availability, there's a fairly easily studyable relationship between uh, lower price, increased availability, and larger levels of consumption in society, and uh, also then larger levels of problems result from it. There's quite often a wish by the scientific community and the general public to believe that there's only some people who are in some ways flawed who will uh, develop addiction problems. Whereas the reality is there may be vulnerabilities that people have, but the increase the level of use, the increase the level of uh, problematic use that's likely to occur, both the level, the prevalence of use and the problems that result from it. And you can look at, uh, it's quite useful to look at some extreme situations as a way of illustrating how societies view that they're safe mm. is not safe. If you take it, what I'll call like more extreme drugs in the the way in which they're viewed societally. So if you take drugs like heroin or cocaine, so with heroin use, which you know the the level of use in society is below one percent. So there's a tendency for people to think, well, it wouldn't ever happen to me or my family or my close associates. Yeah. But you then you then look at a group uh, either of college students or uh, taking a more stressful situation, people who are uh, in armed forces who yeah. are in an in an area where there's large availability and you discover levels of use that might be 50%. So you suddenly think, whoa, hold on a moment. If you play experimentally with stresses on the individual availability of substances that alter that, you, you discover that th- there isn't an immunity to it. Yeah, but not, not everyone who uses a substance will get addicted to it so no, are there I, there are there must be risk factors 
aside yeah. from just the substance use that increased the likelihood of developing that. Do you think there's some genetic basis mm. to addiction as well? Yeah, I mean, we, we know there is a genetic basis, which is a significant part of an individual's vulnerability. Uh, but let's also make sure that we don't think that that both explains everything and therefore means that people who don't have that genetic yeah, absolutely. Uh, characteristic are somehow immune. It, it increases the vulnerability or the, increases the risk that a problem might develop. As science improves, we get a better handle on that genetic vulnerability. But we've actually known that you know, for a long time. You, you can see that there's a familial nature to it. Uh, classic studies, not only to do with looking at how it transmits within families, but also you know, when children might be adopted out of a family or into a family, you can sort of measure that. So in a way, it's probably wiser to see those genetic factors as like an inherited vulnerability, yeah. like might occur if somebody inherited brittle bones, that they need to be aware they won't necessarily break their leg when they're skiing, but it might not be the smartest choice of, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, of sport to engage yeah, in. Yeah, so it's something that might tip the scales rather than sort of being a guarantee of a problem. Yeah, and that sort of opens up some of the areas that are then quite interesting to study. If you start uh, looking at, well, what are the factors? You know, so we have a master's course uh, which has students coming into it and some of those students will do projects uh, looking at what are the factors from uh, initial opportunity to use uh, to use to move on to more extensive use. And one of our recent uh, PhD graduates uh, her PhD was around cannabis use. What are the factors associated with not necessarily having major problems, but factors that then influence the likelihood of moving to the next stage? So you can think of it as if these are progressive transitions that might occur in your relationship with drugs. And that might open up opportunities to intervene at a point much earlier than when something becomes a major clinical problem. And what are the sort of problems then that are associated with addictions? What, what is the harm of addiction? In a way, we're quite often looking at associated behaviours uh, rather than the actual dependence itself. So uh, to some extent, uh, becoming dependent on a substance tends to create a narrowing of the repertoire of interests that you have. You have in... Uh, family, you know, hobbies, friendship networks, work, uh, those lose significance as your preoccupation with continued use of the substance increases. Uh, but quite often it's because some other complication also arises. So if an acute toxic reaction occurs from use of a particular type of cannabis or uh, or if if somebody moves from non-injecting use to starting to inject, uh, or if somebody becomes profoundly intoxicated and is hospitalised, uh, these aren't the dependence itself, but they, might, they may be markers of the fact that the behaviour is just getting uh, less in control than somebody thought it was. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. So I guess it's possible then that there could be two individuals who use the same amount 
of a drug and in the same way, but you might say that one has an addiction or one has a problematic use and the other one doesn't. If they don't think that it's causing them problems, then I'm sorry, I'm not explaining this very well, but if they feel like they are still managing to sort of maintain their role in society and their role in their family life and that kind of thing, then you, you could be a regular drug user. But if it didn't impact on, on everything around you, then would that necessarily be an addiction, do you think? Yeah, I think you're right with the uh, with the question, and it has the answer built into it that the actual quantity and free frequency with which somebody uses in itself won't give you uh, the answer to how much it's interfering with the general healthiness of somebody's quality of life. And we actually see that around ourselves with you know friends and colleagues or ourselves about alcohol use. You know, the fact that somebody may be going through a stage of drinking alcohol every day uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that's causing major problems. Uh, but as we said earlier, uh, the more the more a behaviour like that's maintained, uh, the greater the likelihood of other problems kicking in. So not not just physiological problems about becoming dependent on it, but it coming to be the issue that's determining the decisions you make about what you're doing with your life. One of the questions that I have been asked a lot when I was, I, I quite often ask people about um, myths that they've heard surrounding topics or substances that we talk about on the podcast. And there are a lot of potential myths and misconceptions around addiction. And the one that got mentioned a lot was this concept of an addictive personality. Mm. Um, so what do you think about that? Do you think if someone's liable to be addicted to one thing, then if they quit that, they might have to replace it with something else. Do you think this concept of an addictive personality has any mm. truth in it? Well, the, the answer is uh, yes and no. Okay, <laughs> so But let, let me try and sort of fill in those to give you a little bit more uh, detail than that. So there are definitely people whose pursuit of issues and their immersion in issues that they're involved with in life have a quality that you can see is repeated time and again, uh, which will include with substances, but it will similarly be with relationships or with hobbies uh, or with work involvement. But th that doesn't necessarily mean that anything is preordained and inevitable uh, about developing problems in those areas. But a little bit like what we were talking about earlier with family uh, vulnerability, you know, family history that they are probably edging towards an increased risk of it becoming a problem. But the other aspect about addictive personality is that the general public and public perception likes this idea and it tends to feed itself because the flip side of addictive personality is people being able to say to themselves, provided I don't have that addictive personality, I don't need to pay any attention mm. uh, to my own behaviour because I'm not in that category. That's the bit that isn't true. Uh, those vulnerabilities exist and a propensity to be excessive and to get deeply immersed in it may increase the danger of it getting out of control, but it doesn't mean that you're protected or immune just because you don't have that quality. And it tends to get used as a way of justifying the fact that it doesn't, my behaviour doesn't matter. It's those other people's behaviour <laughs> that matters. And humans are very good at that in all sorts and, of fields, not just addiction. <laughs> yeah. And we, we see it. Let's take the debate in the alcohol field. You know, people will say, oh, 
you know, we're, we're just promoting sensible drinking, but it, it's those other people and their behaviour that yeah. is what we need to worry about. It doesn't affect, you know, my behaviour shouldn't be affected at all. Yeah, everyone seems to think they're in the, the upper half of intelligence and the upper yeah, half of attractiveness. And we're not very good at yeah. placing ourselves in the world, are we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, another myth that I've heard quite a lot is this idea that, oh, you only need to try a drug like heroin or cocaine once mm. and you will become mm. addicted to it. Is there any truth in that? We need to put all these substances into a category where we realise that that first episode of use is a very significant step. Using that first time increases the likelihood that you might use a second time. Yeah. In fact, you can't get yeah. you can't get to the second time without you know going yeah. to the first time. Uh, but there's no inevitability about progression, and in fact we get then caught up in people worrying about what messages are being put out by communi by communicating that rather obvious observation there's often a concern that that implies that we're diminishing the concern about the drug by making that observation personally i'd view it the other way around i i actually think it opens up the opportunities to inform people and guide people about their behaviors uh, if you do say that you pass through a gate and there's no way back again, that has a hugely damaging effect on people who have passed through that gate who think, well, I'm now helplessly, you know, spiralling downwards and there's nothing I can do about it. The reality is there are drugs that are particularly appetitive and if you become involved, let's say, let's take cocaine use, you know, the, the more involved with that, the more difficult it may be to disengage from it. But at each and every point, you ha you have choices to make, whether to continue with that use or to, or to look for a pathway to disengage. That's a much healthier way of viewing it and to those of us interested in either the prevention field or in the treatment field, it opens up exciting new opportunities. So from a prevention point of view, you could look at the prevention of becoming a regular user or the prevention of becoming dependent on the substance or uh, are there prevention opportunities that, that you realise I'm approaching the point that I might start injecting or I might start stealing. Now, suddenly... You have many points of possible influence instead of saying, oh, I've missed the only opportunity there was and it's now too late. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think it just adds credibility to what yeah. if you're trying to give a message about substance use. And that's why I think I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast quite a bit before, but this the whole concept of just say no. It doesn't really work because certainly around something like cannabis use, if if you're told as a child that all drugs are bad and all drugs are the same and then your mm. friends start using a drug and you see mm. nothing bad happen to them, then immediately the whole message is disregardable and that means mm. that situations that are more harmful, you might also think, well, they were wrong about that message, so maybe they're wrong mm. about this message too. And I think it's much better to give as accurate information as possible. Mm. Yeah, and there are aspects that then get lost because of this preoccupation with... So you make the observation that some people might use and not become dependent users. And it's a much more understandable process, which then allows you to look at how might that difference be made? How, how might friends, family, 
yeah. be able to influence that. So somebody starts getting involved with you know, any of these substances that we're talking about, well, their friendship networks and the family support they have around them or the social context they're in, those will influence the decisions. And it's a, a richer, more, more honest and mature way of viewing the options. It also is at risk of obscuring a different quality that we tend not to pay much attention to, which is some substances, there isn't really a word for it, but it's to do with their stickiness, that they're quite difficult to disengage from. Mm. So heroin use, for example, is, is very rare uh, and we get waves of epidemics of it. But what is quite striking compared with looking at many other substances is that uh, when that epidemic has passed, there, there's more of a, uh, in, a in a way, a, a persistent population who can't get out of it. Now, that's a different sort of casualty rate. It's a casualty rate of people for whom it's become so incorporated into their way of coping with all sorts of issues that it has a stickiness to it, which we need to factor into thinking about how we address problems. Actually, this brings us really nicely onto the next question that I wanted to ask you, which was about treatments for addiction and or dependence. What kind of treatments are there? And if people feel like they've got a problem with a substance, what should, what should they do about it? Of course, the, the majority of people who realise they've got a problem with a substance will deal with it themselves without ever coming to any treatment services. So if you start thinking, you know, I'm drinking more often than I ought to, you, you don't need to identify yourself as someone who has to go to hospital you know, or, yeah. or to a treatment centre. But sort of breaking with habits of daily use, you know, daily use both physiologically and psychologically gets into your system and it, it sort of gets ingrained in the way you cope with all sorts of situations in life. So changes in behaviour... Uh, Changes in your lifestyle, you know, the, the other things you have going on in your life are, are crucial to making those changes. People then, you know, there are some people who then discover I'm not able to make those changes. I need to go and seek help. Sometimes that will involve talking therapies and they may or may not be associated with medications as well. Talking therapies, I'm deliberately using a sort of all-embracing field yeah. there because there's lots of different approaches that people would have. And in a way, I, I think the most significant feature is that you need uh, a, a trusting relationship with somebody who's able to guide you through taking control of your life again, rather than homing in on any specific treatment approach. The medication aspects tend to either be that you've got a short-term problem that needs to be addressed, such as being alcohol dependent and having withdrawal problems mm. when you stop drinking, where you may need a, a medication taper to help you get off. The real problem there would be, are you stable and okay once you've come off, or are you just going to go into a, a periodic abstinence and then binging and then yeah. abstinence category? And the other medication approach which is used would be to address the pharmacological dependence somebody has by giving a replacement. The two famous examples of that would either be methadone maintenance treatment for someone's heroin addiction, or particularly, you know, we've realised over the last couple of decades, 
with smoking that nicotine replacement. Nicotine replacement won't stop you smoking, but nicotine replacement increases your likelihood to be successful in your quit attempt. Mm. So it sort of deals with one aspect of what you're having to deal with while you pay attention to the other aspects. I think that's quite an interesting example as well as the smoking example of how an addiction or a habit like that can be both physiological. You're sort of- Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Dependence on nicotine, but mm. quite often in terms of smoking, there's this huge psychological aspect that goes along with it as well. The mm. ritual of smoking, the cues that you see that remind you of smoking will make you mm. crave cigarettes and that kind of mm. thing. And I'm, I'm guessing that's the case with a lot of other substances as well, that it can be this mm. sort of tied up in a number of different pathways or, or mm. sort of behaviours. And therefore, treatments might have to tackle both of these at the same time in order to really help a person be sort of successful. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, and what, what is, what's interesting is the commonalities across the different substances. So most of us working uh, in the addictions field, either as researchers or as clinicians, will probably have come into the field with a, uh, a main interest in either alcohol or tobacco or illicit drugs. And then... If you have the opportunity to work across those substances, yeah, they are different, but you're actually struck by how many of the issues are similar. Mm. Yeah, there are physiological or pharmacological aspects to be addressed. But if you think that's going to deal with somebody's problems in their entirety, it's clearly absurd. I mean, anyone who's hospitalised you know, for appendicitis or, or if someone has a brief uh, prison sentence or something then from a physiological and pharmacological point of view, maybe they're sorted by the time they come out. And you'd be naive to think that their smoking behaviour or their heroin or cocaine use wasn't at major risk of reinstatement when, they, you know, when they're back in the environment that they were previously in. In terms of what a successful treatment would look like, do you think that recovery always has to mean complete abstinence from a substance? This is a hugely important question, which in the public debate people grapple with. Uh, And I I think from a science perspective and from a clinical perspective, we can help with that public debate. If we look at other problems that people come to seek help for right across the health health spectrum, uh, we might have an aspiration and they might have an aspiration to overcome the problem as completely as possible. 
you know, if somebody has broken a leg, they wish to be, they wish it to heal. They wish to get back to as healthy and as fit a situation as they could be. Maybe they won't ever be as excellent and athlete or mountain climber as they were but the the direction of aspir you know the mm-hmm. the aspiration uh, is in the same direction some issues are easier to deal with and the time course of getting over those problems is short term and getting over a chest infection uh, you, know, you you would hope that it was clear fairly quickly others have a much longer time course uh, some may never have the opportunity of getting back to where you were you know, if you're being treated for your diabetes or your raised blood pressure, you may be able to change your lifestyle, your diet, uh, as well as medications. But you may also need to accept there's some degrees of recovery that aren't achievable. That doesn't alter the, the fact that you're working towards maximising whatever recovery you can make. And I think that's what work in the addictions field is like. You're you're taking the individual, working out with them what is it they're wishing to address and helping them maximise the movement they can make in that healthy direction. What they need to do that, the support they need to do that and the time course over which that occurs will sometimes be very brief for some people. But for the majority who have contact with treatment, there's a longer-term awareness of their vulnerability. There's a longer-term effort at improvement. Sometimes that involves continuing contact with treatment services. Sometimes it's something that somebody does without formal treatment contact. So in, I guess in, for things like smoking and heroin are the two examples that I can think of where treatment might involve a replacement substance, so nicotine replacement mm. therapy or even e-cigarettes. Mm, um, and yeah. then with heroin, methadone or potentially even medicinal heroin. I think some mm. countries do that, don't they? Mm. Is that a long-term maintenance kind of thing mm. or is it mm. on the path to getting people to stop completely or, as mm. you say, it's sort of more of a case-by-case mm. basis? Yeah, let's start with the nicotine example and then move to the other. Uh, So with the nicotine example, there's very clear evidence that for many people that increases the likely successful outcome to their quit attempt. And it's the smoking of combustible cigarettes that's giving you the heart disease, the lung cancer and so on. Now, do I then think it's better for people to be able to move on and to be able to disengage from reliance on their nicotine patch or their gum or nasal spray and you say yeah look that's a clearly good objective but I wouldn't want to be forcing that process and jeopardizing the achievement that somebody'd made Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's a very comfortable place for a clinician to be where you, you understand this is really good the quit that you've achieved Let's work out whether the medication's still essential for the gains you've made. It's probably what every clinician has to do when they're talking to somebody whose depression has been successfully treated. Do they need to continue with either the medication or the psychological intervention to maintain that? Or is somebody now sort of self-sustaining in their recovery? So I'd very much protect the opportunity for somebody to continue with that if that's necessary 
to maintain the gains they've made. That would, in the jargon term, be be called a harm reduction approach. Yeah. You, know, you might accept the continued reliance on the nicotine if it achieved stability of what one saw as the more important objective the of the quitting smoking. of the smoking. Yeah. So now transfer that thinking across to the heroin field. The logic is very similar. Uh, methadone won't stop somebody using, just like a nicotine patch doesn't stop somebody smoking, but it makes it a lot more likely that somebody will successfully quit their heroin use. Uh, but you're still needing to work with somebody to say, there's all these other things in your life, there's all these associations, your contact network is really not healthy for uh, quitting your heroin use. Uh, what are your employ? You know, how do we get you some employment opportunities? You then look at whether you can disengage from the medication bit with methadone treatment or buprenorphine treatment. And if you can disengage from it, then that's valuable. But you would not want to disengage if it then compromised somebody's stability and they then returned to injecting heroin again. Yeah. And then you also asked me about the uh, supervised heroin prescribing that occasionally occurs. So this would be, uh, in a way, like in intensive treatment. It's like intensive care treatment in the addictions field for the most severely uh, aff afflicted individuals. Okay. We've sometimes taken people with chronic heroin addiction problems where people have generally said they're untreatable. There's nothing that can be done. And we've been able to work with them where they come into a clinic, take medicinal heroin under supervision, and we work to get proper disengagement from the illicit heroin use that they've been involved with for maybe 15, 20 years. And from that platform, you can then build on other improvements and works that somebody can make. They may get their first part-time job that they've had for 15 years they begin to form links with their family again. Uh, so it would be a platform. And you'd then have the same question of how long do you need to carry on with that intensive treatment? And the reassuring observation is people themselves then wish to move on. Uh, they may be nervous about moving on, but as people get their first job, get reunited with their parents or their children whom they've lost contact with, those those other aspects of their life become more important and they, they wish to diminish their involvement with treatment. That idea of giving someone heroin is quite a controversial one, isn't it? It's certainly controversial. Uh, so the question is, is it worth being controversial? There's, there's no point being controversial just to be controversial. <laughs> what has been interesting about it is that the Swiss initially became uh, leaders in piloting this in the mid-1990s. And since then, we've, we've now had six randomised trials of this particular supervised heroin treatment in six different countries and taking a treatment population that basically people had said there's nothing we can do with this population. And all of those treatment trials have found the same surprisingly good results with an intensive treatment. Now, Society and healthcare systems are then faced with the challenge that are you willing to commit to a more expensive treatment? It's labour intensive and it's medication expensive, but you get results. 
and cost-effectiveness analyses find that it, it's a better value investment. And this surprises people when they say, well, how can it be better value because it's so expensive? Uh, and the answer is, well, it, it's better to have an expensive treatment that delivers benefit than a cheaper treatment that doesn't deliver yeah, the benefit. Absolutely. And suddenly it becomes a bit more obvious once you view it that way. <laughs> it's a politically challenging... It involves governments to be brave enough to support those treatments. In the UK, we've, we're in an in a, uh, ambivalent position about it. So mm. we've supported the research that shows the benefit. Department of Health has identified that it is an evidence-based treatment... For extreme cases. And then at a local level, we have a lack of funding support for the individual clinics, sometimes which then are opened, but then close. Uh, but in fact, uh, at the moment, we have the probability that a new clinic uh, is going to be opened up in uh, in Scotland. So you think, oh, scientific evidence does guide the development of the field and help set it up in the right way. Do you think there's a lot of sort of stigma around this as well that might be one of the reasons why people, why, why there's this barrier towards these, this kind of treatment? People think, oh, it's too expensive because of the stigma around addiction and around mm. people who use heroin in particular. Yeah, I, I think there's a major problem uh, that the stigma issue, you find that areas that would be naturally implemented in other areas people with other health problems, uh, suddenly society and funders step back from what's logical implementation. Uh, I, I'll actually pick up a different example if, if it's OK. Uh, we've also been particularly interested in looking at can you prevent uh, heroin overdose deaths? And uh, we've been interested in training families about how you manage an overdose crisis or, or training friendship peers about how to manage it and how to give a there's an antidote, uh, is that naloxone? Which, you, which is naloxone yeah. exactly, and you start thinking, well, hold on, this is exactly what we would do instinctively if somebody in the family had a severe like uh, a food allergy, allergy or, or a bee sting, yeah. yeah, peanut allergy or a bee sting you know, allergy, uh, or if they had diabetes or if they had epilepsy, you say. We better make sure that the family know how to deal with this, how to use and the if, if or whatever, yeah. and if there's a, if there's an EpiPen or if there's an emergency anti-epileptic, let's make sure they know how to do it whilst waiting for the ambulance. The naloxone work that we've been doing, which is now pretty widely used in many countries around the world, but it opens up, you know, it exposes that ambivalence where where people are going, well, we're not, we're really not sure that. Um, you know, we we don't want to approve of the behaviour, and you know, I, I'm quite comfortable with the fact that I don't want to approve of the behaviour, but I certainly want to make sure that the family and the friendship network know how to stop that person dying before the ambulance turns up, and yet, yet we allow it to translate into something that isn't implemented because the trivial cost doesn't have a budget line to it or something like that. Yeah, that's a depressing point there. Um, I'd like to change track a little bit now. What do you think... It's... Now you make me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of talk about smartphone addiction, pornography addiction, mm. shopping addiction, mm. gambling addiction, yeah. sugar addiction even. Do you think 
Do you think these are addictions? No, I really am nervous. <laughs> yes. No, no, no. You, it's a really tricky one to answer because, I mean, I think it's best dealt with by both a literal response and uh, a response of, is it a useful way of thinking about the behaviours? Personally, I'm, I, I've reached a stage where I think the behavioural addictions, uh, so uh, ga- gambling behaviours, for example, do fit the model sufficiently cleanly that we should think of them in the addictive behaviour category. But then some of the others, from your example, I actually think they aren't addictions in the true sense of the word, but it might be quite a useful way of looking at somebody's you know, unhealthy, yeah. Yeah, their, their unhealthy preoccupation with use of it. Uh, and I think it sort of trivialises the problems that people might have in those other areas of substance addictions and gambling addictions to say that, you know, I mean, I particularly like dark chocolates, you know, I mean, but, <laughs> but, but for me to say that I've got an addiction problem in that area, there may be aspects of control, seeking of it and, you know. And, Changing a lifestyle uh, around yeah. dark chocolate shop. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, there may be aspects of it that are a useful way of thinking about it, but personally, I don't think they qualify in the true sense so I, I end up saying there, there are a few of those behaviours that should be considered properly in that way. And, and others are, it's a useful way of framing it, but it's not literally correct. And one thing that has been interesting in things that I've been reading recently is this idea of whether or not addiction is a, is a sort of brain disease. Mm. And I think that's causing quite a lot of disagreement in academic circles at the moment. Yeah. So the way in which we would look at it in in the group I had, and so you know, if you look at things like the master's course we've got and the PhD students that we have, uh, those will cover brain aspects of the behaviour, uh, but also psychological aspects, uh, you know, wider social and policy aspects. Uh, the, there obviously is a brain dimension to it, but then there's, of course, there's a brain dimension. There's a brain dimension to our conversation yeah. <laughs> you know. and there's a danger with the brain disease view of it that uh, that those other aspects are eclipsed by the preoccupation with the brain dimension to it if it is a brain disease it's one that is influenced by local fashion and availability and waves of epidemic you know that that if you were in the fifth form, not the sixth form in a particular year, in a particular school, you know, it might mean you had a bigger likelihood of the problem or a lesser likelihood of the problem. So your brain disease thinking has to be embedded in that socio-political context. Yeah, I think, I think that's very well put as a way of looking at it, that of course there are aspects of it. And that's partly why people have said that pornography, for example, or smartphones might be an addiction is because in in it's a lot of it is from brain scan studies where they mm. show the sort of the uh, <laughs> the old nucleus accumbens area yeah. of the brain, which yeah. is involved in reward, uh, yeah. seems to be also involved in these other things. But to, to sort of take the leap from seeing that brain activation mm in a study to then say, well, that means that it's addiction. 
that's a, mm. that's a bit of a bit of a leap, isn't it? Would you say? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if this is podcast material as a <laughs> communication, but the, um, the, one of uh, one of my brain orientated colleagues has a wonderful slide of the brain with at the middle of it uh, the nucleus accumbens marked with uh, NAC for the nucleus accumbens, and of course the the group I head is the National Addiction Centre, as the <laughs> NAC. So. I, I'm always slightly amused by his slide that he points at it and says, and that that's the heart of where we need to, that's where we need to look. So I, I, I don't think he meant it as endorsement of our broadly multidisciplinary approach, but, uh, but that's the message I take away from Excellent. it. Excellent. Oh, I really, I really want to leave that in. I think that's really good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But I suppose the sort of the flip side of is is addiction a brain disease is 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 addiction a choice and I think mm. this again maybe comes down to this stigmatization of people who are, who struggle with drug use is this idea that oh they've brought it on themselves they've chosen they've chosen to use that substance and mm. now they've sort of got mm. to deal with the consequences. Yeah, so I, I'm a university academic, but I'm also a clinician. You know, I'm a a doctor in the NHS. I guess a huge amount of what is seen in the NHS uh, is influenced by people's behaviours, not only current, but their past behaviours. I want to work with people to address that and to help them change their behaviours insofar as that's possible. Uh, They are choices that people make. So uh, they have problems today that are are a result of previous choices they have choices to make now about the extent, the, the effort they put in to making changes to those behaviours. Uh, anyone who has a is on blood pressure medication and is to any extent overweight or not eating in the way they should, it's not only what medication so, somebody could take but how they change their behaviours. Uh, I, I think we need to move away from somehow... Uh, demonising the individuals who've got caught up in addictions problems. Nobody ever set out to become addicted. They may have made unwise choices somewhere along the way, and you know, which of us hasn't? Yeah. You know, so uh, the, the issue is in what way can we help people get to a better place than where they are now? Well, I think that's a brilliant place to... Uh... To end it. Thank you very okay. much to uh, Professor Sir John Strang from King's College for joining us today. Thank you very much. And there we are. Now, to coin a phrase from Pip, I found that conversation absolutely fascinating and I really hope that you guys did too. Thanks once again to Professor Sir John Strang and everyone involved in the King's College MSc course in addictions for help with this episode. Do check out their website for more information about that course. And the next bonus episode will be about sugar. So keep your eyes out for that. Bye. You've been listening to Say Why to Drugs with me, Dr. Susie Gage. The music was by Jim Murray. The artwork was by at my name is Ad. Say Why to Drugs would not have been possible without the generous support of I'm a Scientist Get Me Out of Here, the Medical Research Council and Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces Network.